Today's sermon comes from John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who I have spoke of. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Undoubtedly, you've heard the phrase, a sight to behold. It's a phrase we use to describe someone or something that stops you in your tracks. I remember the first time that I saw the Grand Canyon. It was when I was uh, probably a young teenager with my family. And I remember when we walked up to the edge of the canyon and got to that railing and looked out over it, it was, it was breathtaking. My brother and I stopped hitting each other. Our family stopped talking. We just looked and we took it in because it was so beautiful and, and just awesome and great. Right? It, was a, it was a sight to behold. It stopped us in our tracks. Uh, a number of you know some of the story of my wife and I when we dated before we got married. It's a long story, but I'll never forget the day that we both worked at a church and I walked into the office on a Monday morning and I, I peeked my head around the cubicle to say hi to Kim like I always did for months and months and months. And yet that morning when I peeked my head around and said hi, it it was as if God had lifted a veil off my eyes and I saw her in a whole new light and she was and is a sight to behold. I remember that day, I, I, I couldn't think straight. I had an awful day of work, very unproductive because of this new reality that had hit me. Uh, 2016, Rio Olympics, Michael Phelps ends his career as the most decorated Olympian. 28 medals, 23 of them gold. And that was a, a, a sight to behold in the sense of an achievement that is just great, that stops you when it happens and you pause and you look and you contemplate. At the center of this passage in John 1 is a statement from John the Baptist. He says, behold, verse 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is meant to be nothing short of 
A sight to behold statement, exclamation point. Someone great has come onto the scene and John says that with every intention for everyone to pause, to contemplate, to look, to consider who this man Jesus Christ is. Now, I don't know where you're at spiritually this morning. I would imagine in this room, we have people that have been following Jesus Christ for years. Some of you that are brand new in Christ. You've, you have a brand new life in Christ, but it has just recently happened. Some of you that maybe are contemplating, considering who is Jesus, all the claims that he makes, and maybe some of you that just aren't interested. Here's what you can't do with Jesus. You can't ignore him. He is and was one of the most polarizing historical figures. As we work through the Gospel of John, you'll see that there are people that literally give up everything to follow him. They drop careers, they drop, uh, leave family, they, 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 they take on poverty to follow this man. There are others that outright reject him. But what that means is that here is a man, Jesus Christ, that you have to engage. And a man that John the Baptist, when he sees him at this moment when God revealed him, says, behold, look, contemplate, think, consider. And the question becomes, why did John the Baptist make that declaration? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is Jesus Christ so great and a sight to behold? Why is he someone that you should look at and consider and contemplate? First, because of his worth. Now we see in the beginning of this passage, the priests and the Levites, they come to find out what John the Baptist is doing. Here's a man who is baptizing people. People are following him. And the leaders in Jerusalem say, we got to figure out what's going on. He's stirring things up. So they come and they ask. And, and John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. And I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet. Now, why did they ask that question? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Well, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses tells the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So they're asking the question, is this the greater prophet that Moses talked about? John the Baptist says, no. Now, what about Elijah? Why do they ask that question? Well, Malachi chapter four, verses five to six. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. Now, here's what's interesting about that. In the other gospels, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi 4. So you have John the Baptist who's refusing this title that Jesus gives him. You say, why? Well, look at verses 27 or 26 and 27. It says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. A student was expected to do everything for their teacher, except that a slave would do for a master, except take off the master's shoes. And here you have John the Baptist, 
saying, I'm not even worthy to take Jesus' shoes off. I'm less than a slave. That's what he was saying. Compared to the worth of Jesus, I'm less than a slave. And this gets even more astonishing when you read of what Jesus thinks of John the Baptist. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says this of John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So you've got Jesus exalting John the Baptist, saying this is the greatest man I've ever known, and John the Baptist is doing what? Refusing titles, refusing acknowledgement of reputation, saying I, 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 must, I must decrease. Now, here's what's even more astonishing about that, is that John the Baptist had a following. He had people following him, getting baptized. In fact, a couple chapters later in John 3, his followers that got baptized by him, they see people going to Jesus and getting baptized by Jesus, and they say, John, what are you going to do about this? People are leaving you and going to Jesus. And I love, I love his response in John 3, 29 to 30. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, meaning Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. What's John saying there? If you've been to a wedding, I assume you have, at the beginning of the wedding, what happens? Usually you have the pastor and the groomsmen that walk in from the side. And then what happens? The bridesmaids process down the aisle and take their place. And then what happens? The door, the door swings open. And there's the bride. Sometimes that bride starts walking down the aisle and, and, and tears are streaming down her face. And sometimes the groom is standing up front, the bridegroom, and tears are streaming down his face. And she's walking forward. Now I want you to imagine if the maid of honor, who is the bride's sister and best friend, jumps out in front of the bride or in front of the groom and looks at the bride, her sister, her closest friend, coming down and says, you can't do this. We grew up together. We've laughed together. We're friends. And you know that when you get married to him, our relationship's going to change. Stop. You can't do this. This is about me and our relationship. What are you thinking? Now, I can say I've done a few weddings. I've never seen that happen. <laughs> and I hope I never do. No, quite the contrary, what you see right, is a maid of honor that stands up there. This is her best friend. Who knows when, when they get married that their relationship's gonna change and you watch tears streaming down her face because she's rejoicing. Why? That this bride and this groom are being united as one. That's what John's saying. That the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and, and the bride, his people, are being united as one. It's beautiful. And so John the Baptist says, I must decrease. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, must increase. Now, though I've never seen that happen in a wedding, it actually is a pretty accurate depiction of the sin of the world that John talks about in verse 29, that Jesus is taking away. When we go back to Genesis 1, and we go back there often in Genesis 3 to learn about sin, it's because that story so captures what sin has done to our hearts and what it's all about. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God's glory and presence is at the very center of everything. Their entire lives orbit around God. They are circling around this glorious, majestic, awesome God, and they have their joy, their identity, their uh, everything is found in God. And then Genesis 3 hits. And what do they decide? They decide to, to remove God in his presence and his glory that defines them, that gives them joy and worth and security. They decide to remove God from the center and put themselves in the center. They say, we, we're going to take control of our lives, tempted by the evil one. We're going to take control of our lives. We are going to find happiness apart from God. We're going to find it on our own. And so they suddenly become the center and the tragedy is that you and I were never designed to be the center, nor were we designed to orbit around anybody else as the center. And yet, that's what happened in the fall, and that is the sin of the world. I read an, a fascinating article this past week, and you can see why it, this article was up and about, but on what would happen if the sun disappeared from the solar system right? in light of the eclipse, right? We just had recently. What would happen if the sun disappeared from the solar system? It was really fascinating to read. Uh, light from the sun takes eight and a half minutes to reach earth. So the, the, the author said, if the sun instantly disappeared, we'd at least have eight and a half minutes of light and warmth. The last bit of light coming from the sun. But what they said is that literally the earth, which, which, revolves around the sun because of the gravity of the sun. If the sun were removed, it, Earth would, would, would uh, move in a, a straight line trajectory into utter darkness and utter, utter coldness. And that's a, that's a beautiful, a tragic, should I say, picture of what happened in Genesis 3 and what has happened to our lives. That when God is removed from the center as the, I'll use the word gravitas. You, you, you've heard that word, right? We talk about somebody who has gravitas, somebody that's got gravity that people are attracted to, right? If you remove God from the center, that our lives are on a straight line trajectory to darkness and to loneliness and to utter lostness. And that we were never designed to be that. We were never designed to be our own lords and saviors. We were always designed to orbit around Jesus Christ and his glory. And that Jesus' glory is what gives us joy and life and, and worth and security and all of that. And so why should you behold Jesus Christ? Because of his worth of his gravitas, of his glory that's heavy and weighty that gives you purpose as you revolve around it and gives you worth and gives you joy. So why should you behold Jesus Christ? First, his worth. Second, his deliverance. So the, the, the leaders from Jerusalem come and they say to John the Baptist, okay, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Then who are you? <laughs> Tell us, who are you? And look at what he says in verse 23. And he's quoting out of Isaiah 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, the context of Isaiah 40 that John's quoting from is that Israel, and, and throughout the remainder of Isaiah, Israel's in exile in Babylon. 
And so Isaiah is talking about this, as he describes it, literally this road from Babylon back home to Jerusalem. In Isaiah 40, it reads this way, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Literally, it's describing the Lord, right, making a, a smooth road from exile, sin and unbelief, and I dialed back to Jerusalem, back home. And by the time you get to the end of Isaiah, you realize that Isaiah is talking about a much greater exile and a much greater deliverance. That it's not just talking about Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's talking about God's people in exile in this world, making their way to the new heavens and the new earth. There's a greater exile. There's a greater deliverance. And it's, it's described well, though, by the context in Isaiah. So you've got God's people who are sent into exile, but what's interesting is what precipitated God's people going into exile in Babylon. And we read it in Isaiah 31.1. Lord says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. What that's describing is that Israel removed the glory and the presence of God from the center. And that as soon as they did that, as soon as they removed God from the center, they naturally started looking for other centers, like the nation next door, Egypt, who they went to for help, or like horses and chariots, a military for strength. In other words, when that center was removed, they started looking for something else to orbit around something else for their worth, their security, their significance, their identity. And that's a beautiful picture and an exact picture of what happens in our hearts and how sin works. When you take Jesus Christ as the center and you remove him, our hearts are naturally inclined to find something else to put at the center. Whether it's a person, job, money, thing, whatever it may be that our hearts naturally are inclined to do that, to find something else to base your existence off of. Let me take you back to the illustration about the sun disappearing from the solar system. I read a few articles. One article was really interesting. It said that probably what would happen in addition to Earth just going on a straight line into utter darkness, but what would happen is all the planets would probably start interacting with one another gravitationally. So the inner planets that are traveling faster would catch up with the outer planets. And you get this picture of like planets, you know, one being attracted to another planet and then maybe orbiting for a little bit, but this planet wasn't strong enough to hold it. So then it bounces off to another one and, and you're just bouncing off back and forth into exile and darkness. And as I read it, I thought, what a picture of the human heart. That we, when we try to put something else in the center that, that doesn't belong there, we're drawn to it, and maybe we start to orbit our lives around it for a little bit, and then we bounce, right? So we bounce from relationship to relationship, right? Or from friendship to friendship, or from job to job, or from pleasure to pleasure, right? And what we're doing is, if the Lord is removed from the center, we're trying to find something that can hold and keep me steady and define my existence and give me worth and significance and joy. And so we insert these things back in the center. In her uh, book, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. That's an interesting title. I know you want to read it now. 
researcher, she's a researcher, Mary Jo Sales, wrote this book. And she reports a conversation that she had with a teenage girl in a mall in Los Angeles. And this is what this uh, teenage girl started, told her. She said, quote, social media is destroying our lives. And so Mary Jo Sales responded and said, so why don't you go off it? This girl, Nancy, she replied, seems reasonable, doesn't it? If something is destroying you, let it go. Smash it, get rid of it. And then the girl's response was instant. Because then we would have no life. Now, insert anything in for social media, okay? Insert a person, a job, money, whatever it may be. And let me recast that conversation in spiritual terms. This is what it would sound like. My idol, that thing that is functioning as the center of my life around which I orbit is destroying me. But if I smash my idol, then I disappear. Now, that's actually true. That if you have something other than Jesus Christ at the center, functioning as your center, if you by yourself, under your own strength, try to smash that, you will disappear and cease to have a life. But if Jesus Christ smashes that center, and if you invite and welcome Jesus Christ to smash that center, then you don't disappear. You actually reappear with new life and new worth and new identity and new purpose and new security in Jesus Christ because now he smashes it and he's the center. Now, how does he do it? Well, verse 29, I've said it a few times. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The story of the Bible you could argue, is a story of a lamb from beginning to end. Abraham and Isaac and the offering through the sacrificial system, and you'll read about, we sang about it, the lamb in Revelation. It's the story of the lamb, and it's the story of God committed to smashing your idols and smashing those false sinners without smashing you. And so in the Old Testament, particularly at Passover, you would have God's people that would bring a lamb to the temple, a beautiful, spotless lamb. It had to be their best lamb of great worth. And they would bring it and, and their sins would be transferred to that lamb and the, and the priest would slit the throat of that lamb. And it was a reminder to them that God was going to smash their sin and their unbelief and their idolatry through a substitute and not through them. By the time we get to New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God, spotless, never sinned, without blemish, perfect, of great worth. And your sin and your idolatry and your unbelief, as we sang about, is put on him and he puts it to death and he takes it away. And that's the story of the greater deliverance, the greater exile of sin, unbelief, and idolatry, and the greater deliverance that Jesus Christ brings. And not only does he put it to death, but then he rises from the dead to new life. So that when you attach yourself to Jesus and you unite yourself to him in faith, 
you rise to new life with him at the glorious center, giving you purpose, giving you joy, giving you significance. Why should you behold Jesus Christ? First, his worth, second, his deliverance, and finally, uh, his empowering, his empowering. You see an emphasis in this passage where John the Baptist is being questioned about who he is, but then they really dig in and say, hey, if you're not Christ, you're not the Christ, you're not Elisha, you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing people? (laughs) What's going on here? And his answer, his short answer is, listen, I baptize with water, Jesus Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But how he explains this is what he witnesses. And what I want you to see here is this is John the Baptist witnessing something from God. This came to him by revelation. He didn't figure it out. It's a man who, a prophet who was, uh, it was revealed to him. Verse 32, look what he witnesses. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Now John here is speaking of Jesus' baptism. It's recorded in the other gospels. He doesn't record it in full here, but it's recorded in the other gospels. And he's talking about when Jesus was baptized that the spirit came and descended on him and remained on him like a dove. And then verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. Now, some manuscripts there say the elect or chosen one of God. And that is directly out of Isaiah 42. One, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So here it is, Isaiah prophesying of what we read now in John 1, right? That this Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the anointed elect one, and God pours his spirit out on him, and it remains on him as the anointed one. And then Jesus then turns around and pours his spirit out on his people. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a special baptism that special Christians get. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking of the indwelling Holy Spirit that every believer of Jesus Christ gets at conversion. The spirit poured out. And it's the, it's the spirit that's poured out that's prophesied in Ezekiel. Chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what I want you to hear. The gospel is not just about forgiveness. Yes, it is. Jesus takes your sin away, but he doesn't leave you in no man's land. It's not like like he he delivers you from exile and, and slavery and then just leaves you in kind of this middle ground. No, he delivers you, he forgives you, and then he puts his spirit in you, the very spirit of Jesus Christ. So that with Jesus operating as the center of your life and his spirit in you, he keeps you orbiting around him. He won't let you go off in a straight line path to utter darkness and coldness. It's an incredibly comforting prophecy in Ezekiel that we see fulfilled through the baptism of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. 
that Jesus implants himself in you and he will cause you to keep him at the center. Incredible assurance that we see as the spirit is poured out on you so that you will worship Jesus and he will keep you orbiting around him. Now, there's a phrase that appears several times in this passage that is, I'll say, provocative. Maybe at least eyebrow-raising. Let me show you. It occurs three times. Verse 26, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's speaking of the Jews there. They don't, they don't know Jesus as Savior of the world, but then it gets even a little bit more perplexing. Down in verse 31, then John says, I myself did not know him. And again in verse 33, I myself did not know him until God revealed him to me. Now this is really odd because John the Baptist is cousins with Jesus. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. Their mothers are sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. We read it in Luke. Right? So Elizabeth has John the Baptist. Six months later, Jesus comes so these, Jesus and John are playing together. Growing up, they're playing in the dirt together. I, you know, whatever kids do, they were doing it. When, when Mary and Elizabeth get together, Jesus and John were playing together. And now at 30 years old, John the Baptist says, I didn't know him. You say, what? Well, what he means is, I didn't know him as savior of the world. I didn't know him as Messiah, as the one of great worth that would deliver us and that would empower us. I think something we can learn here, you can, you can grow up in and around Jesus. You can grow up in church around Jesus, hearing about Jesus. You can know about Jesus, but not know Jesus. You can know about him, but you cannot know him that there's that, that is going on here. There's a, a story that Tim Keller tells in his book on preaching, and he describes meeting with a 16-year-old girl, teenager, who was particularly struggling with depression and discouragement. And so he met with her to try to encourage her. And he says, as I tried to encourage her, it, it, nothing was seeming to happen. And then there was this kind of revelatory moment when she said something. And this is what she said to him. Yes, I know Jesus loves me. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven. But what good is it when no boy at school will even look at me? And he goes on to say, she said she knew all these truths about being a Christian, but they were of no comfort to her. The attention or lack of it of a cute boy at school was far more consoling and energizing and foundational for her joy and self-worth than the love of Christ. And he goes on to say, of course, this was perfectly normal response for a teenage girl. But nevertheless, it was revealing of how our hearts work. She had the opinion that Jesus loved her. She had the opinion that Jesus loved her but she didn't really know it. Christ's love was an abstract concept while the love of these others was real to her heart. And I would say to you that this is a real possibility. 
that maybe you have grown up knowing about Jesus in and around Jesus, but he's not the functional center of your life, that you don't know his worth and his deliverance and his empowerment. And yet if that's you, Jesus stands with his arms wide open and says, come to me, know me. Don't know about me, know me. Have a relationship with me. Know my worth, know my deliverance, know my empowerment. And when you do, you will find your worth and your security and your joy wrapped up in him. Let's pray. Father, we pause on this statement from John the Baptist. This declaration of behold, stop, look, contemplate. And Father, we confess that oftentimes our hearts are not there. And yet we thank you for the promise of the gospel and what we read in Ezekiel, that you've poured your spirit out into our hearts and that your spirit is is inclining our hearts to, to stop and to behold and to look. And so we pray, Spirit, that you would quicken our hearts to the greatness, to the majesty, to the worth of Jesus Christ. And that our joy and that our our worth and our identity would functionally come from you, Jesus, at the center. And Jesus, if there are other centers in in our hearts that we're revolving around, that you would smash them, that you would remove them and replace them with yourself. And Father, I pray for those here this morning, maybe that have grown up knowing about Jesus. Maybe in a church or maybe around the conversations in the family, but have never really known you, Jesus. I pray, Spirit, that you would grab hold of their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would find the infinite joy of surrendering and falling at your feet, Jesus, and finding life coming alive. As we close in worship and we sing, Jesus, of your beautiful name and of your magnificent person and identity as the God-man, that you would capture our hearts and cause them to erupt into singing and to worship of you and who you are. We exalt you, Jesus, and we behold you, and we look and we contemplate your greatness. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.